And we are really excited to welcome Ken Nickerson onto the show today. Ken is the CEO of iBinary LLC. Formerly, he spent a decade at Microsoft, five years at Rogers Communications, and several years in banking and insurance development, developing emergent systems. Mr. Nickerson is a founder, board member, or advisor to DTAS, i6, Omer's Ventures, CDL, Xanadu, Horizon IO, and he was previously involved with Flexil, Rhythm, OpenCola, and Kobo. <laughs> All right, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Perfect. So what was the, what's been the most successful company that you've invested in with iBinary? Uh, so there's a few that you would know and a few that you wouldn't know. Um, um, so it was actually before iBinary was incorporated, but I was uh, involved with Hotmail. Um, within iBinary, or maybe under just my name, but at the same time, was a company called DocSpace. Um, but one that you would know, I'm trying to think of public things, like they're private, not private, but smaller companies. Uh, the one that you would know is Kobo, certainly. Uh, oh, yeah. The ebook reader. Kobo, for those of you who don't figure it out by now, it's an anagram. It's book, K-O-B-O, B-O-O-K. I've had this explain that. I've yet to meet, I, I think I've actually met one person in the last, whatever, 10 years that, that knew that. Uh, or figured that out for themselves. It's, it's, and, and you know, and I got to be honest. It was it was Mike Servinus and Heather Reeson and I. And and uh, when we got the name, the original name was Short Coverage. When it became Kobo, we all thought it was so clever. <laughs> everyone's gonna get this. It's like an inside joke, but you know, it's obvious. So everyone's gonna get it. I never met a person that got it in like ten years. <laughs> but Kobo did quite well. Uh, you know, for a, 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 it was a, like a for the right investors. You know, eight x, ten x over a twenty six month period. I think. Uh, from SuperNets, mm. and, and that's hardware, and as they say, hardware is hard. So <laughs> to create hardware and software and infrastructure and build a team, uh, now all the kudos, it, the, the the original idea uh, it was mine. I mean, that, that's fact. I, I saw e-ink when I was at MIT, uh, when it was like just two-bit, and I, it, literally two-bit, two ping-pong balls like rotating, and I went, oh my god, that would be like the perfect, I thought magazines first, to be honest, but it made books, and I couldn't get anyone to invest in it, and anyways, whatever. And, but, but a lot of the success of Cobol goes to the money that came in from uh, Indigo, Heather, and others, and Mike Servinas, fantastic management of that company and CEO. He grew that company to about 400 people. Yeah. It still exists. It got purchased by a company in Japan called Rakuten, and oh, yeah. it's now run by a gentleman named Michael Tamblin, who was also part of the early team and a brilliant guy in, in, in his own right, and it continues and continues to flourish. And arguably, you know, the, certainly the number two, or, or some countries, number one player outside of the U.S. So the strategy was always, look, Kindle's Kindle, Amazon's Amazon. Everywhere else, that's for us. And so we were very aggressive at, at global expansion with almost negligible uh, uh, market share in the US because freaking Amazon and Kindle, I mean, what are you going to do? These yeah. also just ruthless and arguably, you know, well, there's a lot of talk right now that he'll be the first trillionaire. Well, then, you know, good for him. <laughs> so, what was the name of the think tank that you're a part of? Was it one or multiple? Multiple, but they, okay. I, unfortunately, when we just chat, it's fine. But, okay. I see. Yeah. They, I, if I ever have a chance of, you know, not getting into trouble, that would be a way. But there, there are many public and private think tanks. I participated in, in many. I, I, I don't go as much as I used to because what I found, like most clubs, and you've been a member of clubs, I'm sure, is that there's two things I despise about clubs. And number one is, you know. How hoity, you know, oh, I'm in the club, you know, the big think, especially, you know, the term think tank drives me insane because my experience has been usually everyone's there with an agenda, political or financial agenda, and they're not really thinking. They're certainly not thinking of the greater good. So think tank right there, that's an oxymoron. Uh, but having said that, I do believe that uh, there are very good people in the world and, and they want to make the world a better place. It's not clear to me 
they get to be the, the chosen ones, if you will, at, at these things. It usually goes to the power and the wealth, so political or you know, uh, a, a great deal of either family wealth or, or uh, entrepreneurial wealth, it doesn't matter. But uh, the problem with family wealth, especially, uh, so you know, from royalty down to inherited wealth, uh, and then the extreme rich people, is no one ever tells them no. And so as I've, I think I've said to you, I've been invited to an incredible number of things all over the world in my life to give talks and speeches and world leaders and stuff like that. So no BS, I mean, I can prove everything. I've got so many photos here of me with world leaders, it's scary. Uh, but I never get invited back because I reach, and it's not because I'm better or worse, I just can't stand uh, saying yes to dumb ideas or and even to my own idea. Actually, everyone says yes to their own dumb ideas. I, I but, but, you know, they'll say something and I'm like, yeah, that's really dumb. And I can just see my name being crossed off the list for the, for the next trip. Not coming back. <laughs> it's happened to a couple of uh, political leaders, like, 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 yeah, big, big people, like prime ministers, presidents. Where any they'll that, say any something that can be I, named? Well, I, I, yeah, you can kind of guess, but I, you know, they, you know, one said something once and I said, huh. He goes, what do you think? And I said, well, I think today's your chance to be wrong. <laughs> oh, no, today's your day to be wrong. And he looked at me and I am sure that no one had ever told him maybe since childhood that he was wrong. It, yeah, I've never heard those words. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah it, was like, it was like he was. <laughs> what does wrong mean? Does not compute. What, what, is that Latin? Is, <laughs> that, is that German? Is that Yiddish? What are you speaking? There's a level that people get to uh, where they no longer hear the word no or can you clarify or you know sorry that contradicts contradicts current evidence and whatever that you know and scientists usually don't have that baggage mm -hmm. uh ha having said that you know i suspect there's more than a share of nobel prize winners who have been kind of out of phase with the current research and have said something and everyone just kind of nods their heads out of respect um i just can't do that and, and by the way that doesn't mean i'm right i could be wrong too but if i don't think something's correct it's like i'm sorry but that that sounds bozo to me. Right. What do you say we go investigate it further so I can prove you're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, I completely agree. It's a, it's a disservice to the other person to just blow up the bubble. I like think it's a compliment bubble. you can give someone. Yeah. But, but having said that, everyone reacts differently. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been in many, many meetings over the years because the kind of people I recruit uh, for, you know, or friends I have around me where I'll say something wrong and I'm, I'm wrong at least 50% of the time. If you ask my family, I'm wrong 90% of the time. Uh, if you ask, uh, yeah, so, so, so I will say something because it was right at the time when I said it, uh, you know, years ago, but I'll repeat it in modern times, something, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, optimization theory or whatever. And, and so I said, well, no, you're, you're wrong. Well, that was just proven two years ago. And I'm like, oh, I'll bet you a dollar. <laughs> and now, now we have a temporal argument because if we could roll back time to the nineties, I was absolutely right. You're right. But unfortunately for me, uh, you know, it's a red queen problem. You have to run very fast to stay in the same place. And I didn't run fast enough in that particular area or field. And so I'm absolutely wrong. And it's, it's humbling and you feel a little embarrassed, but I gotta be honest, I would rather someone do that to me than go through the rest of my life believing a falsehood. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. How are you, so you're never gonna get anywhere if you don't try and learn and you just well, let yourself just, stay in a bubble. Just from a thermodynamics point, like it's literally a waste of energy. Yeah. Right, and so why, why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you want that other than, other than ego? And look, I have an ego, you have an ego, everyone has a big ego. If you're successful in life, you'll have an ego. You have to have that to get through. But, but, but you want to make sure you don't cross that line uh, uh, where, you know, it, it is imper impervious uh, to challenge. So you said that you can't disclose the names of these think, think tanks, but can you it's, give it's me any sort of information on? Now, the problem I have with 
with institutions or think tanks, from my experience, and, and to be fair, I get kicked out after my first time usually, um, but is that I, I think they should be one-ups. So, you know, we have this issue, and I think the response to COVID, especially around the ventilators, was interesting because we had a hard problem. It needed to get solved. We, you know, call it went out around the world. Many innovative people came together uh, in small groups or, or independently or, or within organizations, uh, and we witnessed, if you take away the graph and the backroom deals, we witnessed the, the, the ability to create a $100 fully functional, maybe even $200 ventilator that three months previously was 10,000, 15,000 US. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. I didn't see any think tanks working on that problem before. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it might've taken three or four years or sessions to get that to that level of performance. So, so I guess my, 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 my view on, on these things, that's why I'm a, a little bit tad militant on it is there's two things, uh, you know, organizations, fraternities, things like that. And it's, I'm not disparaging them. Like if you're happy, great. Uh, I've been invited to join many and I just don't do it because there's two things they worry about, in my opinion. Uh, number one is, you know, who else should be allowed to join us? <laughs> Which whatever politics that goes into that uh, for press politics, you know, prestige. And, and, and number two is how do we sustain or build the brand or value, you know, of our given organization? And, 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 it's, you know, same reason I don't do boards anymore. I go, I go on boards of advisors. I'm an advisor to Xanadu, you know, many other companies, uh, but I won't go on their boards. And because when you, and I, and I used to be on many boards, public boards, private boards. Uh, but it, when you're on a board, you tend to talk about, you know, CEO performance, you know, shareholder rights a little bit, fundraising, uh, a little bit of HR, a little bit about DNO, but, but they're all like far removed from the core problem. Mm -hmm. Where if you join boards of advisors, you're not a, you don't hire or fire the CEO, so you're not a threat. If you have some skills, it becomes collaborative. Um, and I like boards of advisors because they're companies that otherwise I would love to join or be an employee of or partner of or right. co-founder of, but I just don't have the time. But to be able to have a day or two, a month, uh, you know, after this call, I'm going to be spending a couple hours with Christian uh, Weedbrook at Xanadu. We, we talk hmm. every week, uh, even during COVID, of course. And, and we just talk about ideas. Yeah. You know, talk about, for the most part, people, money, I mean, if that, that fall into the conversation that I needed. But what we talk about is, you know, you know, what is, a, you know, what is a fully uh, entangled, you know, uh, what, what can we do with a fully entangled 50 qubit, 100 qubit computer uh, right. running on, on the stack? And, and, you know, should it be virtual? Should it be localized? Uh, you know, should we, uh, would we sell it to, uh, you know, hedge funds and just let them get richer? Or would we sell it to military and let them, you know, be more effective at, at what they do? Which is not great. Uh, and, you know, we're having this ongoing dialogue and debate where we bring in other people too. But what does the most successful quantum computer company in the world look like in five years. Uh, and so, so they're philosophical, they're, but they're topical. There's okay. the point is, there's very little conversation about, you know, who did this to who and office politics and, and uh, you know, money and, you know, those are just immaterial things. Does that okay. all make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. so my biggest criticism on, on, on organizations in general and why I almost never get invited back, uh, and I don't get too upset about it, it's a little bit of an ego hit, I guess, but uh, is that, you know, I usually go and I say the truth at least how I see it. Could be wrong. I'm happy when someone goes, you're an idiot. You know, here's what is truly going on. And sometimes you get educated that way, which is fine. But I definitely don't go to be a cheerleader, uh, to be a fellow member or whatever, and have a secret mm -hmm. handshake. It, it, those things just are, to me, a, 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 it, it, it's not even icing on the cake. They're, they're like the you know, cellophane wrapper that was around the cake, and, and you're never actually getting to the, the core of the issues. Um, how do you split your time between all the different organizations that you're a part of? And how has that changed post-COVID or recently? Yeah, how do, how, do you, how do you balance all that? 
Yeah, so, you know, it, it, the reason I do interviews, I, I despise talking about myself. Uh, I okay. talk about ideas and stuff. Okay. But, you know, really quickly, uh, and I'll get this over with in 30 seconds, when I was uh, very young, so like four or five years old, uh, we figured out, well, my parents, I was too young, but figured out, I, I thought it was normal, but I had a sleeping disorder. And so I, I just don't sleep. And I tried polyphase sleeping. And the most I do is four hours out of every 24. Now, that's that's good, I guess, because you know, I have more time than, than most folks. I get the extra probably somewhere between you know two to four hours, or for some people, maybe two to 10 hours uh, uh, of, of wake time. That's the good news. The bad news is you know you got to keep busy or, or you, you kind of yep. go nutty. And so as a child, and, and what got me into more technology, my parents would come in, you know, they would sleep normal and they would come out. And, you know, since four o'clock in the morning, I was disassembling the toaster, the phone, the TV, the radios. Uh, and, and when you're four or five years old, uh, that's, that's problematic, especially TVs, because back then there was a tremendous amount of current going through them. Uh, uh, and I've been shocked more times. I, I, you know, I literally have had electroshock therapy from like five to I don't know, 15 when I was smart enough not to touch live wires again. Uh, but the point is that, you know, you got to keep busy. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that I had some great reading that I, I was an early reader and I read a lot of, uh, at a young age, science fiction. And to this day, I read a, at least a, one science fiction book a month. And uh, even though my world was very, uh, I don't want to say impoverished, but, you know, very lower middle class, we didn't have a lot of stuff. Uh, it was reading those science fiction novels that I was like, okay, the world's maybe more interesting than I thought. And so I think science fiction is a good, if you will, gateway drug into science. And so you'll read something in science fiction and go, wow, I really want anti-gravity boots. But then you go and read physics and you go, you know what, that's probably a fruitless endeavor. So now maybe we should move on to something else. And so that, you know, that in terms of times of the day, I, it, it drives me insane. One, one, you know, I don't like cruelty, uh, you know, obviously anything that most people don't like. But high on my list is uh, when someone says they're bored. I, I, you know, bored people are boring. There are so many things to learn. So many great writers, great books, great ideas, great concepts, great friends you can have, like a conversation like we're having now. Like we, we, there are so many ways to explore this, this universe and, and, and this world. And you know, we're all essentially you know, one step removed uh, you know, from, from our you know, chimpanzee brethren. Uh, you know, we, we are essentially talking monkeys on an organic spaceship you know, going through the cosmos at, you know, several hundred thousand miles an hour and with no control, no rudder, no yep. steering. And, and we managed to survive. And I think, you know, there's just so much learning that can be done from that. So when you say we get a lot done, I, I think most people uh, uh, that are uh, successful, I'm not saying super successful, most people are successful, realize there's a joy in doing, there's a joy in discovery uh, that far exceeds uh, the ownership of material things or, you know, prestige or, I don't know, a good tie or something <laughs> that, that literally the joy of discovery is, is close to, to, to the, it's certainly in the top five things you can do to have a meaningful life, but it requires effort, but that effort is absolutely worth it. And so, you know, I get things done because I, I don't have downtime for the most part. So how, how, have you, have you changed the things that you've been focusing on um, post COVID? How have things changed or yeah? Yeah. So COVID's an interesting thing for programs. And I'm essentially, you asked me to you know, describe my role in life. I'm a hacker, uh, I'm a hacker in the traditional sense. Everything I look at, I go, I think that could be done better. And sometimes I'm wrong. And, you know, uh, I build something and it's, it's terrible. And I go, okay, that's harder than I thought. Uh, and sometimes it, it actually goes okay. And, and, and here's the thing about COVID for most of programmers out there will get this or, or mathematicians or there's someone who's involved in their work. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to go on my keyboard here, but you can't really see my tap, 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 coding away, looking down. And someone opens my door and says, 
what do you think about the COVID crisis? What? Oh, okay, I'm going to go back to work. So I got to be honest, <laughs> the only thing that's happened, and it sounds terrible, I know there's tremendous suffering out there, and I'm very sensitive to that. I, I, genuinely, I, you know, uh, I, I, it's, it's a horrible thing. Uh, but I got to be 100% honest, because I think that's the only way you can be in life, and that, that is, my productivity has doubled or tripled. You know, I'm not driving anywhere. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, moving around the city to different meetings. Uh, so the, the, the friction of getting things done, of, of transport, of travel, getting on a plane, you know, getting to a hotel, giving a speech, whatever, any of those things, that's all been taken away. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think uh, it's a little bit of sensationalism, but Jack Dorsey announced, you know, uh, the employees of Twitter from now on can just work at home. Uh, and, and I think uh, historically there's been a reluctance of management, quite frankly, to say uh, we trust our people enough that they can work from wherever. Uh, we, we can't do that. It, it has to be like you know rowers in in, in you know in a, in a Roman ship that are being whipped <laughs> in parallel to get to get through the day. Uh, what's changed probably since and I'm very old. Just remember that. So it, it's changed. I would say in the last couple of decades, is that we used to have this concept of the supervisor, which is, comes from supervision. Uh, it's a military term, you know, being up on the hill, like in the Napoleonic Wars, and you have supervision, you would direct the action. But what has happened as, you know, technology, life, and not just technology, arts, uh, you know, dance, theater, everything has bifurcated so much that the domain expert long since passed the supervisor for probably 20 years now. And management theory has just started to catch up with that, where they go, uh, here's the task we need to get done. And so that has, that's their role, really, to describe clearly the goal and the constraints to achieve that goal and, and offer support and guidance and facilities, but basically not hang over your shoulder and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Because quite frankly, for the most part, they actually don't, wouldn't understand if you told them. And I know that's a bit harsh, but I'm sure in your own life, uh, you've had this experience many times where you've done what you considered your best work, someone that you kind of respected, and it can be a parent or you know, aunt, uncle, teacher, you know, comes over, what are you doing? And you had to dumb it down to a level so low that, uh, that you know, it, it's an awakening moment where you go, wow, I actually know more than this mentor of mine. And, yeah. and, and so you, you know, being a young scientist, you, you've probably witnessed this yourself a few times, uh, but that historically was not the, not the case. We've had to, I think, in business, shift from being supervisors to you know, more like conductors, uh, right. where you set the pace and you know when the score starts and when it ends, but you may not, you know, you not, may not, you likely are not a master at all the instruments that your, that your orchestra, that orchestra has. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Work is getting ever more complex. Um, complex and and and, and quite frankly, the respect for that for for that talent. So, you know, if if Jeff Hinton, you know, at U of T and at uh, Google and Vector Institute, if he said, you know what, uh, I think I could do my best work uh, in uh, in Chad. Well, guess what? There'd be the Jeff Hinton Institute for AI in Chad sometime tomorrow afternoon. Uh, you know, it, because it's clear that, you, you know, at, he is at a skill level mm -hmm. that whatever allows him to achieve the things he's going to achieve, we as a society need to support. What else you got for me? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, pontificating on these big freaking deep thoughts of life. <laughs> I should be interviewing you, by the way. I'm an idiot compared to you. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I have a lot of years of catching up to do before. Um, I think that'd be a good interview. Which interview? With you? You, you interviewing me. Oh, I, I'm, I'm there. I, I, I can start doing it right now. No, I think, I think I've, I have some years to catch up. I don't think I'm there in like knowledge yet. 
so there's you know there's a stack it's almost like a maslow hierarchy of needs of, of information i would say and you know there's noise the universe right. is full of you know four hertz or whatever is noise uh then there's data and then you know kind of information and then there's kind of you know rules or or observations or statistics uh, and you know and, and then above that you kind of get knowledge and then there's a gap just like you know on the us dollar bill there's a gap in the capstone of the pyramid there's a gap that you have to cross and i think only age gets you there and that's that's the, the wisdom and there must be really wise 20 year olds out there i i gotta be honest i've not met them and and i think what what one of the biggest ironies is going to be is i probably won't discover this for another 10 or 20 years but that my grandmother was right about everything <laughs> yeah she may have been the wisest person on earth i don't know but it's amazing and, it, and it's and so you know wisdom uh is is that combination of that stack when you get past knowledge you know that gap that that air gap between the capstone of the pyramid of, of wisdom and the knowledge on that top rung that air gap is 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 experience it's it's yeah. time yeah and so you know when i, t I tell i do i've done uh, roughly 36 startups when i lose money <laughs> <laughs> on one when it goes under we put in vc terms they call it putting it down you put down a dog you put down a, a startup i fill up i have these notebooks i have about 200 of these notebooks and i fill up a full notebook of lessons learned when a company goes under and it fails because i revisit it revisit it revisit it and i just make lots and lots of notes business notes mostly but they're also technical when a company succeeds the only thing i learn is what color my new porsche is going to be <laughs> there's no wisdom in winning in a way there's, yeah. there's certainly there's 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 a good spirit good nature in winning if you can win but but you learn far more you know wisdom or experience when you fail uh and yeah and, true. and that's why it's so damn expensive to get wise you have to lose <laughs> millions of dollars over the years and wow do i ever feel a lot more confident in business than i did 20 years ago but it was the most expensive education of my life yeah Fortunately, the ones that worked out are, you know, the non-sequitur ones are, you know, they, they, they generate enough wealth to cover up the mistakes like VCs. But, uh, but you, you really learn a ton when you try re all your, everything you got and it just doesn't work out. And then you re-examine, you should just, you should move on, but, but you really need to examine. And in those examinations, you will always find that one or two piffies that you went, I should have saw that coming. Mm -hmm. I will not let that happen again. Now, if you let it happen again, you should be reading Einstein's definition of insanity. <laughs> what are your thoughts on um, potential economic repercussions of COVID-19 in the future? So how will it impact the world? How do you think that COVID-19 will impact the world economy on a short-term and a long-term timescale? Sure. So, so I don't think we understand how, how great the impact of COVID is going to be to the geopolitical, social, possibly family structure going forward. Yeah. Um, and and it, because it's there are primary effects that we all know in terms of testing and masks and gloves and you know all that stuff not, you know uh, sorry uh, separation isolation bubbling uh, now is the hot term so so there are things we know those are primary results second you know as as a result of COVID mm -hmm. secondary and tertiary effects are things that that we will have to discover I think and and so the example of that is you know years ago. Uh, there was a so-called shoe bomber on a flight. You know, he tried to ignite uh, a fuse on his shoes uh, to blow up a plane, a, ter a so-called terrorist, or not so-called, he was a terrorist, he wanted to blow up a plane. So he, he, he had, I don't know, dynamite, or I forget what he had packed in his shoes, but someone caught him and was trying to light his shoes, which is, you gotta admit, if I was sitting on a flight and the guy next to me had a big lighter and he was trying to ignite his shoes, yeah, I might notice that too. <laughs> so, so it's good that you got noticed. What was hard to predict from that 
is every flight ever since then, I've had to take my shoes off when going through security. I, I just uh -huh. wouldn't have had high on my list of things I have to worry about is not having holes in my socks uh, or smelly feet when I go through the airport. I, it just never was on my list of things to worry about. On the secondary effects, uh, uh, I, I worry about two in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, one is that uh, we, uh, it, it has a massive, and I believe this is going to happen, unfortunately, impact on uh, our, our privacy, our personal privacy. Mm -hmm. I think uh, there's a, uh, in, in the right desire to track and manage and maintain uh, exposure and to have information and, and so-called big data behind that, you know, whether it's through the phones or self-reporting or whatever, uh, we, we won't recognize the amount of loss of privacy from today, this conversation we're having right now, mm -hmm. to what the world will look like in five years. I actually think it's going to be a dramatic shift, like a, and I mean dramatic, like, like really dramatic shift in yeah. personal privacy. Uh, the the uh, Senate on, uh, U.S. Senate on Friday, today's Saturday, on Friday uh, passed a bill where it is now legal for the FBI to look at your browser history without a warrant. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think if the, you know, uh, uh, the founding fathers and, 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 and the federal papers and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, whether it's Thomas Paine's or, or Jefferson were alive today, well, they're, they're literally spinning in their, in their grave. They're, they're, they're spinning in their grave so fast right now that, you know, the North Pole is being reallocated yeah. uh, to, to, I think it's on its way to Siberia right now. It's, it's, it's that upsetting. And so, uh, so right now we're having a one, I know you're recording this for your podcast. Yeah. We're having a one-to-one -one Zoom chat, uh, notwithstanding the Zoom backdoors and hello to the uh, Chinese government who's watching this, uh, not to be paranoid, but uh, I actually think it might be mandated that there is a, uh, a supervisor, if you will, or, or a, a witness to, to video chats in the future, for example. Uh, now, I, don't, I think it's, it's extreme, but your, your personal privacy, because uh, I'm a lot older than you, it's going to be a burden to you for the rest of your life, I think. And, and yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a sad secondary effect of this. So under the guise of, there's a famous line from Machiavelli, the prince, which I'm going to mess up because I'm terrible quick, but it's, it's essentially uh, in politics, uh, never... Uh, let a crisis go uh, unused. Mm. You know, take advantage of a crisis for an agenda. The agendas are always there. The agendas of managing, or it's going to sound conspiratorial, and I'm not trying to do that, but there's always agendas. There's things that governments like to accomplish. In, in for sure, for sure. Yeah, decades ago, there was yeah. a line that said, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly who said this. I don't think it was Kissinger, uh, but it, it was essentially you can accomplish more in five years of, in, of war than 50 years of peace. Mm -hmm. And so when there's a crisis, people are open to anything. Just like, like, like just get me through this, let me survive. Yeah. Oh, what's that? You're going to take away uh, my ability to have encrypted email? Yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, I'll, at least I'll live. You know, and everything just seems okay compared to dying, obviously. And yeah. So, but we should be fighting back on those things. So that's number one. Number yeah. two, and the one that that I think is, is disturbing on a more personal level, is that um, I'm 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 old, and I was in, I come from the age you know, you shake hands, and I would shake hands with my father every night going to bed. You know, there was no hugging or kissing, and I and as more modern era, as I started teaching a little bit uh, and, uh, and at the university a lot, the you know. Uh, your generation or the one slightly older than you, you know, anyone in their 30s or younger, mm -hmm. when they greet, they hug. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, it took me at least 10 years to get comfortable with that. I, it's just not my nature. It, it's not like I'm a bad person. I just, I just thought, like, hey, I, I don't even hug my, my mom or dad. I mean, wait, wait. <laughs> what is this new thing? <laughs> and I got to be honest, only in the last year, maybe, I've gotten comfortable with, okay, well, you know, if that's what they do. I get it. And I, so I will, you know, do the one second hug. I'm sure I'm not like, uh, as gregarious as most, but at least I, I've gotten past that, you know, glacier of stopping me from doing that. Uh, 
why that's important is, is human connection. You know, our, our largest mm -hmm. sensor is our skin. You know, it's generating, I think, 11 million bits a second. Um, I, I do worry a little bit that, as, as, that we overdo isolation to the point where we lose connection and yeah. everyone becomes the other or the enemy. And you'll witness this today. If you go out, you know, we're allowed to go out shopping for now, for example, today. And maybe you'll wear a mask, maybe you won't wear a mask. But so let's say you're wearing a mask and you go into the grocery store. And yeah, someone's six feet away, but they're not wearing a mask. You kind of look at them and you kind of scrunch up your face and go, oh, that's an other. That's someone who doesn't care. That's a non-believer. You know, uh, it, it'd be the equivalent of someone coming in, you know, with a big beer belly and no shirt on, you know, drinking a beer at, at, at a wedding or a funeral. And, and you're going, wow, that's our, you know, Uncle Jim. He's a little special. You know, just ignore him. But the reality is everyone's brain is going, oh, my God, who invented, who invited him? And, and, and I worry that we will bifurcate between, certainly our atomic families are tight but we will bifurcate way worse than we ever did before between us and them. We're yeah. seeing it in some of the hate stuff that's come out, you know, certainly the POTUS down in the U.S. hasn't helped us any, uh, you know, uh, where we're seeing, you know, racial attacks going up, uh, uh, especially obviously in the Asian population where, where, you know, people are, you know, foolishly executing on us versus them uh, thought process in their brain. Yep. There is no us versus them in terms of species. <laughs> All the same. <laughs> I got some bad news for you. Monkey. Yeah. And, and so, but having said that, I think COVID uh, has the ability to far greater isolate us uh, than, than we were, certainly, and, and, and where we're going. I'm talking way past Victorian era etiquette uh, and process. And that's a very dangerous thing because it lowers your empathy and your ability to understand the other, those other folks. And, and we know from history what happens when we lower our threshold for for empathy and for care mm -hmm. uh we, we you know typically we'll view ourselves as a superior species to an inferior species and right. then you know you make fun of whatever their their looks their gods their language their locale their diet their you know uh, education their 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 entertainment uh and and that's that's possibly the far more dangerous thing coming out of covid uh that, that has me frightened uh, at this point yeah no i think that I have, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially with what you're saying with sentiment towards China and everything else. I think there is going to be a lot more us versus them. And that was something that I've been thinking about recently as well. That is frightening. Yeah. It's, terrifying. it's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 you know, uh, if you study uh, any of the primates, it, you know, this tribalism, the return, return to tribalism, whether it's at a nation state level uh, or religious level, uh, an academic level, you know, I, you know, I, I, I've never understood it, i got to be honest, because uh, it's always illogical to me. So I'm not a sports guy, I think I've told you this, but I find this hilarious, like absolutely hilarious, that you'll have a favorite sports person. There used to be a, a Blue Jays player named Batista. He was really good, like, kind of hit all the home runs. I know nothing about baseball. I, spent, I spent a couple of days with him a few years back, and, you know, we'll oh. talk mostly about, uh, you know, economics and, and single malt whiskey, because he's a single malt whiskey freak. Uh, <laughs> I don't know anything about that either, I don't drink, but, but you know, he's a very interesting, entertaining guy. Anyways, he had a Blue Jays uniform on, and everyone loved him. And then he switched to another team, and he puts on a different shirt, and everyone hates him. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, that makes no sense to same me. Same guy. It's the same guy. But, but, you know, and that happens in academia. Be, you know, you'll, you'll be with someone at U of T. I'm at Rotman a lot, and U of T a lot. And they, where, where, they, you know, where did that person go to school? Oh, he's a nice guy. But he, he went to York. And they, they, they looked down, and they, they, lowered, they whispered almost, you know. So what do you think I could? 
Yeah, you know, he, he, he's pretty good, but, you know, he, he, he went to, uh, what the McGill? You know, they, they whisper it. <laughs> like, like they have some kind of communicable disease. All that tells you, this is all pre-COVID, what that tells yeah. you, we're always looking for that, these bifurcations, the owls, allies, that tribal instinct that the chimps have so strongly, we're still chimps, we have that instinct. Mm -hmm. And anything that reinforces or rewards that instinct is incredibly dangerous. Oh, yeah. Uh, because we're all on the same spaceship. And, you know, and, and the obvious things that I don't have to go into in terms of, you know, history and war and stuff. But, uh, but COVID could be leveraged if you have an agenda. Uh, and, and, and let's just argue that possibly uh, uh, political entities, particularly in the U.S. right now, have an agenda. You could drive an agenda far further and faster mm -hmm. post-COVID than you could pre-COVID. Some of the things yeah. that are being said today, if you said them pre-COVID, uh, notwithstanding who's saying them, it, it'd be like, oh, that's insane. Yeah. Where now it's actually getting some airplay. And that's, to me, one of the most frightening things that, that's a result of this. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what interactions will look like in the future and what will be acceptable to say. Yeah. yeah. Or, or who you'll be allowed to say it to. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, what if... Uh, you know, you're reject you get on a plane, you fly somewhere and you're rejected. And why you're rejected? Well, you know, there were, you, you can laugh at that, but there were times where you'd be rejected going to a country because of religion or, mm -hmm. you know, or skin color or whatever. And, and so uh, those barriers, we've worked very hard. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think as a species for the last hundred years, you know, not even hundred years, 50 years at that, tearing those barriers down. Yeah. And unfortunately, crises, if someone has an agenda, uh, you know, if you like building walls, uh, yeah. COVID's a great excuse to build some more walls. So you may not even get the chance to interact and explain yourself um, if you're not welcomed in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Crises, like you said, crises are a great opportunity for enacting agendas. COVID is, it's like been engineered for well, it's, separating it's, people. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a gift because you can get anything approved. Yeah. You know, the, the world uh, in terms of just, you know, federal debt is, is you know, I'd have to do deeper homework because I'm off maybe a bit. But you know the, the price of COVID thus far just is it's you know arguably like you know ten trillion dollars. Yeah. Try pre-COVID to say, hey, you know what? I think it's time to stimulate the economy again. Uh, I'd like to put through a bill for five or six trillion dollars. The laughing wouldn't stop yeah. for twenty minutes. But in a crisis, it's like whatever, whatever it takes, just just get it done, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. In terms of like, so you mentioned the ventilators. In terms of emerging tech, do you see any new spaces of innovation or places that are being improved or maybe gaps where things may change after COVID? Yeah, so so I, I could I could my business plan is literally uh, I, there's a guy I, I, I was having lunch with four years ago and mm -hmm. I took and we're at a cheap diner and they had these paper mats. I flipped it over and I traced my hand and on each one of the fingers I put the things I'm going to work on for the next five years or yeah. or longer. Uh, and, and, and then the things that they have in common. I'll send you that because it's, it's not secret. Uh, and the, the things that we need to focus on, at least in my opinion, uh, are energy. And so mm -hmm. at the end of the day, uh, for me at least, and, and smarter people should challenge me, but, the, uh, but it's, it's, core, it's literally the calories, you know, heat, energy, thermodynamics are being used to convert something to something else for value in, in terms of economics. Uh, you know, we, we, so, so for example, say I consume... Uh, say I put tires on a car on an assembly line and I consume 3000 calories a day to do that job. And I can do uh, 200 cars a day. I don't know. I know nothing about it, but you know, thinking of, uh, of uh, Adam's kind of, you know, machine assembly. 
And now there's a robot that comes along. The robot's kind of expensive, but based on electricity and whether it's you know geothermal or fossil fuel or whatever, uh, it's able to do my job times two. So now it's able to do 400 cars and it can do it for the equivalent of 1500 calories because it doesn't have to worry about a liver and a circulatory system and breathing <laughs> and playing. And, 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 and so, uh, so I, you know, I always try to break things down at, at, at its deepest level of calories. And so calories also means energy. So of the hand, you know, the first finger is always energy because uh, energy uh, or thermodynamics is, is literally the, the, the process, both macro and micro. Mm -hmm. uh, AI and robotics is next. And the reason it's next is because of that displacement of energy. And so I have that high on the list. To enhance us, obviously I have genetic editing, so things like like CRISPR, but it'll be CRISPR is like the you know the first scalpel. It's kind of cool, uh, but it'll be eclipsed, and, and it has actually been eclipsed. There's there's a bunch of cast uh, uh, additives, uh, you know, since its discovery, and, and once they get through all the legal fighting of who owns it, I, I'm sure once the, it, the detail the legal restrictions are understood better. But it, it's 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 evolving very quickly, and I, I think that's cool. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, quantum computing. Uh, and that's why I frankly did the, the investments uh, through Omer's in Xanadu uh, and, and think that's a, an, an important thing. Uh, and the last one is space. And, uh, and so those are the five things. And those five things have a bunch of things. I actually drew my arm down a little bit because we have a lot of things in common, whether it's family unit, religion, ethics, law, finance, that, that all of them rely on. Now, in each of those categories, there's fundamental reasons for it. Energy, I think, is self-explanatory. AI and robotics is a lot about doing more with less calories yeah. and so it's about efficiency and why efficiency is important uh is well it's obvious but i mean uh, you can go read edward deming or something but if you want to know why that's important um uh, genetics because i do believe that uh we're near the you know end of shelf life for human 1.0 um mm -hmm. you know our species fifteen thousand years ago there was uh, i believe 12 or 13 you know humanoids uh we were more ruthless and uh, you know, probably didn't have problems with things like war and cannibalism. So you know, we rose to the top as Homo sapiens. But but that ladder, it's not the top rung of the ladder. There's another, possibly infinite number of steps. And so human 2.0, we are on the I think verge of. I think I think, uh, and I could be wrong, obviously. But I think by the end of this century, we will see the emergence before or by the end of the century, the emergence of human 2.0. Uh, Kurzweil, of course, talks about the singularity, and there's there's all these models, and I've written about this. That, that anyone can read uh, if they want. Uh, it's on Medium. Uh, but there are several, there are, I, I, what a shock. I drew a hand, and I drew a hand with the five possible scenarios for human 2.0. And, and <laughs> everything's based on my hand. I'm a very simple person at heart. And, and so, so why CRISPR is important is because of the human 2.0 potentials, there are five. And only one of them really involves CRISPR, in which we go post-Darwin and accelerate our development to keep up it's all everything's like ultimately a kind of a war of sorts and it's a competition between those minimally five that i identified in that paper but but crispr is the one that would take human 1.0 and help us evolve to human 2.0 and I, I find that quite quite fascinating um uh on uh space was the last one but on space space is interesting because we're already in space you know we're, we're on a we're, we're on a, a spaceship going through space we're following sort of following the sun and the sun's sort of you know following uh, uh, its path, and we're moving very quickly. We just don't recognize we're in space because we're too small a species. You know, <laughs> ants don't realize you know, that they're running an anthill kind of thing. And, and, but, but we're already in space. And, and so you know, we've obviously had these endeavors uh, in ISS and you know, uh, you know, landing on the moon in the 69. It's been a while mm -hmm. since we've been there. Uh, but uh, ultimately, we need to return there. And the complexity 
of getting into space, living in space, staying in space, probably does not work for human 1.0. We, our bodies are, and again, I'm not, you know, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, we're roughly 75% water. If you were to take things into space, one of the worst things you can take into space in, in its liquid form, at least, is water. Uh, it, it takes a lot of, it takes, you know, like $100,000 a day to live very badly in space. In fact, ironically, space is like a time machine in a way. So while it's quite futuristic, you're actually living at least at the risk level of someone in the 1800s at $100,000 a day to live in space, if that all mm -hmm. makes sense. So, so I think it'll be human 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0 that ultimately uh, like panspermia, you know, injects itself back into space. Uh, but it's a return, right? I mean, that's where we came from. And that's where we will return to. All stories have an arc and our arc <laughs> absolutely ends in the return to space. Uh, I just think it's almost fruitless that's kind of harsh, but kind of fruitless uh, that we try to take these bodies into space. I, 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 I it, the, the logic is, is I, I love the exploration. I like that, you know, Hillary Klein Everest. I think all those things are great, but from a, from an idea that this could be somehow permanent beyond perhaps, a, you know, lunar base, because uh, uh, there's maybe enough gravity there to make it at least somewhat possible. This is, this is a very broken thing. So we need to work mm -hmm. hard, hard, hard on space. We need to work hard on energy. We need to work hard on AI and robotics. We need to work, work hard on, on CRISPR. I'm missing one now. That's why I'm hesitating here. Quantum? Huh? Was it quantum? No, quantum. Oh, because it's done. Sorry. It's not finished, but because I've done that investment, uh, <laughs> I feel good about that. Uh, so, so quantum, but quantum's actually two things. It's quantum chips and biochips. And so I've you know, made investments into both, um, but, but there's secondary effects because the primary effect is in AI uh, uh, for at least 20, 30 years pursued the barriers to so-called AGI, or what I would just call AI, but now it's referred to as artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. I have zero uh, belief right now. Zero is a harsh point zero 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 one belief that it's going to occur on silicon substrate. So GPUs, TPUs, CPUs, uh, if it's silicon-based, if it's binary-based, it's base two, I have zero faith. I said zero again, but very little faith very little that faith. we're going to get the AGI with that. It yeah. just doesn't work. And I can give you multiple reasons why. I write about it all the time. Uh, and, and so my hope, my heart is that either a quantum computer, a working quantum computer, uh, or a biochip will be the first uh, to, to have a so-called, you know, like an awakening, if you will. And or, the potential is there. It's going to be there with those substrates and certainly not with, with binary-based substrates. Um, there's a wonderful uh, computer scientist named Danny Hillis who was at MIT and did his PhD, and then he created a company called Connection Machine, who, by the way, Feynman worked for, uh, and his son worked for for a while. And he had a great line. I wish it was my line, but I'm giving it to him because it's his, I'm quoting him. But they asked him what he wanted to do when he was getting his PhD, uh, when he was quite young. And he said, I want to build a computer that someday will be proud of me. And I can't think of a better way to say that. Uh, it's just a brilliant line. And so, yeah, I just stole it by giving kudos for it. Uh, and and I, I, I would love to see that in my lifetime. I don't know if that's going to be possible because I'm kind of advanced in age, but uh, I, I, that's why I make these investments. I'm genuinely tracking bio and quantum yeah. for a very uh, specific reason. <laughs> I hope it makes a lot of money. That's great. Making money is great. I'm not against that, but I got to be honest, my core reason is so that I'll have something to work on AGI with. Yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about human 2.0, are you, are you always referring to you know, using CRISPR and gene editing to go post Darwin, as you say, or is there something else you're referring to? No, that's just one of the scenarios. So, you know, you can always argue there's infinite scenarios. I, I only think about five. I, you know, I have a very limited capacity. And so everything I do is in five. I, and, and so years ago, I studied 
uh, scenario-based reasoning, uh, constraint-based reasoning. So all these kind of, I'll call management theories, but ways of thinking. Uh, yeah. And and uh, and and you know, and, and there, there's ways you can build the bridge from you know, kind of metaphysics and philosophy to kind of you know the Demings of the world or or the Druckers of the world and kind of the mid-tier. And then more later, I would say Peter Schwartz. There's a book called The Art of the Long View. I think that's a wonderful book for scenario-based planning and constraint-based reasoning. And the point is that when things occur, so if, if something's coming towards you, uh, uh, you know, it's the famous lily pad problem for, for understanding exponentials. Uh, if you're a farmer, lily pads will kill your pond. So you drive past your pond one day and it's, you know, you notice some lily pads and you go, oh, that's nice. And you go by the next day and it's, there's, you know, 25% it's got lily pads. And you go, oh, yeah, that's nice. You go by the next day and it's half filled with lily pads. You go, gee, I should probably think about doing something about that. It's going to kill all the fish or wildlife. And it's too late, right? So yeah. the idea of scenario-based planning, uh, and less so constraint-based reasoning, but scenario-based planning is that you don't wait for a crisis. Mm. So in the middle of a crisis, your IQ goes down. You know, we have a hippocampus in our brain, and it is constantly look, evaluating fight or flight. And, and when, you know, there, there's this kind of like reptilian four or five things that goes through your head, you know. Quite frankly, not to be uh, crude or, or rude, but, uh, you know, can I kill it? Can it kill me? Can I eat it or can I procreate with it? Uh, I'll use the nicer words. And, 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 and no matter how high level your thinking is and you know, how educated you are or sophisticated you, you feel you are in a real crisis. So if you're in a, in a, in a foxhole in a battle or in a car you know, a collision or, or someone's chasing you with a knife, <laughs> you, you don't run through uh, you know, angle of attack, multivariate calculus, <laughs> about how you might deflect that weapon <laughs> or steer your car and avoid yep. it. You go into panic and the panic, that's when the hippocampus kicks in and it's fight or flight for the most part. And, and it's too late to make a good decision. You'll make a decision that hopefully leads to your, your salvation or your, 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 you, know, your, your, you don't die or whatever, but it's probably not going to be the optimal solution. And so what scenario-based planning did, uh, does, and that's what basically, honestly, a huge part of what my job was for 10 years at Microsoft was you come up with these crazy scenarios that are like extreme, you know, long tail ones, and then all the ones in between. And then I kind of, kind of Pareto analysis that, you know, into five and go from what are the five scenarios that I should fully prepare for now and document and mm -hmm. write up. And so I would literally have, it's, it's old days, but you know, we'd have file folders, you know, computer written, but not printed scenarios for everything. So mm -hmm. literally, uh, you know, the, the, the best developer gets hit by a bus. The building goes on fire. The backup tapes are lost. We can't restore. The internet goes down. Uh, you know, the government takes over the internet. Uh, well, you know, and write up five scenarios. Yeah. And so when the panic mode hits, your reptilian brain is screaming fight or flight, but you have just enough IQ still running to go. Let's look at the scenarios. Yeah. <laughs> and let's try to pick the optimal one. At least there's only five because too many choices is just as bad. If you had a hundred scenarios, you're not going to pick. Yeah. If you have one scenario, you probably got the wrong one. I say three, I think, is too little. I, I'll be honest. And I think we were born, you know, with, with five, well, ten ultimately, and not include toes, but five on a single hand, uh, because that's basically the, the, at least my limit. Some people can remember, you know, many long strings. I, I, anyways, I like the five scenarios. So, so when a crisis hits, you understand that we are weak in a crisis as a species. We run to the alpha dog, the so-called father figure, the alpha male, and it's often referred to. I'm not, they're not trying to be sexist. It could be the alpha female or alpha woman, but, but we, we run to that in panic. And instead, if you do scenario-based planning, what you do is you, you run to the prepared work. And even the worst scenario response is probably going to be better than that moment of panic where you might make really dumb decisions like everyone boarding a plane needs to now take off their shoes and belt. Mm -hmm. That is probably the worst answer 
you know, or we need to x-ray. <laughs> you should only get one x-ray a year. Okay, well, I, I fly 70 times a year. <laughs> so, so, so the solutions that we come up with when we're panicking are, are horrible. And, yeah. and, and so that's the point of that is that, you know, think things through. There's a, like I say, there's a book, it's very, it's it, it, by far the least, if you will, sophisticated, like easiest to read book. It's called The Art of the Long View by Peter Schwartz. It's probably 20 years old. I, I, I it was a, that many, many other books since then, obviously, but that it was, it's a game changer in terms of how you should look at situations. So it's, when you talk about CRISPR and evolving, it's one of, the reason I went through that diatribe is that there's one of five scenarios I've identified. I've put it in the paper that's out there. It's called Death and Taxes. Anyone can get it on Medium. Um, and the scenarios are essentially, you know, continued evolution. So the Darwinian evolution that we're having now, and we know that we're changing as a species. So cesarean sections, obviously named after Caesar. I don't know if you knew that, but, uh, I didn't but, know that. Oh, okay. Because apparently he was born with one. Uh, ah. And uh, the point is that it, there's ample evidence. If you do your research that the human, uh, uh, cranium is getting bigger and, and that's a good thing. And we're evolving. Um, in fact, you could argue that the greatest restriction to our brains doubling in capacity is the width of a woman's hips because a baby has to come through the birth canal. And so if in vitro, you, uh, sorry, in the womb, uh, you know, someone's brain double, well, guess what? We'd all have to be born cesarean. So there's these techniques that could, that are, that are Darwinian, but kind of slightly post-Darwinian. So for example, you know, uh, uh, in vitro fertilization and then ectogenesis, which are essentially artificial wombs. And so if you do some research, you'll discover that, you know, sheep are being born like that now uh, in these kind of plastic see-through bags that represent, you know, that, that with feeding tubes, et cetera, they're essentially an artificial womb. That mm -hmm. term is ectogenesis. As far as I know, we're not doing that with the human species yet, although there are labs all over the world doing lots of weird things. Uh, who knows? Uh, but I don't want to sound like too much like a nutter. And, but I think it's clear that, 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 that post-Darwinian human 2.0 requires a nudge. And so yeah. the least artificial nudge, even though it sounds horribly artificial, is probably in vitro fertilization where, uh, where the, uh, the egg and sperm are, are, are isolated, selected for certain characteristics, certain traits. Uh, so whether it's height or to some degree, it's not possible today as far as I know, but intelligence. And we saw some of that editing going on with Jinku, uh, I can't pronounce it, uh, with, the, with uh, Fifi and Linden or whatever name, Linden, uh, babies in China. Mm -hmm. They were genetically uh, modified with CRISPR to have a resistance to AIDS, as I recall. I think that was the, the, the story. Um, and, and there was a secondary effect to their intelligence as well. It, in, at least it's been reported. It, it, it enhanced it by some percentage. Uh, I've heard as high as 10%. So, so a, a slight advantage to, you can go on as we are in Darwinian evolution. And in 2000 years, because it's been 2000 years roughly since Caesar, we, we may be, maybe women's hips get bigger or maybe every child's born through cesarean, but we, we will obviously evolve, but it's quite slow that pace. And if we stay on that pace, we will likely be superseded by some form of so-called artificial intelligence or singularity. So you can give it a nudge. And the nudge is things like uh, sequencing, looking for desired traits, and then ectogenesis to ensure the optimal kind of more like a human 1.5. But it's mostly natural. I mean, it, but it's not totally natural. If that all makes sense. Yeah, actually. Yeah, so the other ways, for, and I won't go as long on them, but you know, really quickly, uh, uh, for example, if you want to return into, if you want to return to space, for example, uh, you have to look at this concept of like decanting and decanting mm -hmm. is essentially, uh, there's guys like Drexler, there's people that have written about this, Engines of Creation is the book, where pincers, nano pincers, take apart your brain one atom at a time and upload them into a robotic exoskeleton or a robotic skeleton in mm -hmm. which your mind is all there, but your brain has been transferred into a mechanical device. 
uh, and again, I think that would have to be corn or biological chip, but it allows you to essentially uh, live in harsh environments, live forever, whatever, have upgrade capabilities, et cetera. And that, that's kind of an interesting possibility. Uh, there's a possibility where we, uh, if, if you read Simulacra, I know maybe we're in a simulation now, and Elon Musk talks about this, <laughs> but it's possible we're in a simulation right now. We just don't know. Yeah. And so uh, certainly our brains sitting in, our brains in a way are a perfect demonstration of Simulacra because we sit in this fluid and uh, and never see the outside world. I mean, if, if your brain sees the outside world, you've got a problem uh, because you know, you've been hit with something. And, and, and so, you know, we're in this environment already, but but that that model is kind of leaning towards the Kurzweil kind of thinking where you, uh, where you, don't upload to a robotic body, but you just literally upload to the cloud. And and we live indefinitely as a kind of hive mind, possibly hive mind, not necessarily, possibly hive mind, kind of shared hallucinogenic kind of experience uh, in, in that kind of a, that kind of a world. There's another evolutionary step that quite frankly doesn't involve us, <laughs> which is, you know, AI, is yeah. sentience, so-called AGI, uh, maybe takes some of the good things about us, whatever it might like, uh, but then just jettisons the rest and says, you know, thanks, thanks for bootstrapping me. I'll be taking over from now. <laughs> I got it from here. And that's that one's. It's kind of frightening, but if it happens, it, it's it, it is and it isn't frightening. If that's the way it's going to be, that's it's not a, not a fatalist, but um, uh, but that's just the way things go. I am sure the last Neanderthal. I read about this. Actually, my favorite. You know, I, I have this beautiful thought in my head that formed one day when I was looking out the ocean, which is there, at one point there was the very last Neanderthal. Yeah. And I wondered if they laid back in the grass, looked up at the stars, knew they were the last one and said, well, that wasn't worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if they'll keep us as pets or we'll just find a fall away, but, but that's another scenario. I, I actually, I'm actually less worried about that one because yeah. if you say achieve an IQ in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of an artificial being, it's not clear to me the earth is gonna be interesting enough anyways. And so unless there's a conflict for resources, uh, I actually think they might just leave and say, yeah, you know what, you can have this. Uh, you know, actually, Rudy Rucker, a mathematician who writes science fiction books, talked about this, and you know, the, where the robot race, if you will, took over the moon. Humans are not welcome. Uh, and, and, and that's actually not a crazy scenario, although I don't think they'd stop at the moon. If you had an IQ of a million, a billion, and the ability to propel yourself through space, wouldn't you go on a tour? Uh, yes. Now, you'd want to go quickly because it can get pretty boring out there because it turns out the gaps are quite large. <laughs> <laughs> larger than we can imagine in fact so so yeah a thousand if your brain if you had a it could be a torture in a way but if you had a, a billion iq but it took you even four and a half light years to get to the next interesting object you would be insane by the time you got there yeah but i mean if it's a piece of software it's not like it has a finite lifespan so on that time scale exactly exactly and so uh so you know that, that, that's kind of interesting and then there was one other one it's in the paper i, you know, I wrote yeah. that two years ago that one but there was one other one which is like a hybrid thing um, the point is, I think the key point is by the end of this century, uh, it is not clear to me that we will, as a species, continue. There, there may be, you know, there's always going to be the Amish uh, or regional tribes, but uh, I think, but, but it's not clear to me that we will certainly procreate in the same way. So I, when I talk to business leaders or political leaders, when I, you know, when I meet with them, I say, you know, when my uh, parents were, were young, you know, they would have a registered home savings program. And when I was born, you know, they got into a registered education savings program. I actually believe between now and 2020, we'll see this new thing called the RBSP, the Registered Birth Savings Program, because I will be completely uninterested in saving up money for my kids' education. What I will totally be interested in, and it won't be me because it'll be my grandkids, but yeah. I'll, I'll be interested in saving up money 
for the genetic editing required pre-birth to ensure an optimal outcome. Yeah. And there's been books and movies, Gattaca has always mentioned about this. There's a lot of flaws in that movie, but that concept is not far off where for the right amount of money, so you'll go in into a family kind of planning situation with you know, doctor or consultant some kind and say, okay, so you know, you want to procreate, that's great. Yeah. You know, done the screening, here's what we've identified. Well, your maximum capacity is a 300 IQ, six foot four, you know, and I, and I swear, I don't want to be waspy here, but I'm just kind of doing the movies thing, you know, blue eyed, blonde hair, never going to get diabetes, never going to be obese. Do you want a six pack or an eight pack? If you, can, you know, you know, uh, you know what, how you, and, and okay, great, great, great. We figured that all out. Uh, now we can, uh, that's going to be $680,000 to prepare that, that, that sample for ectogenesis, that, 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 yeah that embryo for, for uh, ectogenesis. Mm -hmm. uh, have you, you know, do you have a RB registered birth savings plan or can we put you on a payment plan? All that will occur before birth. Your, 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 your potential will uh, be identified. And I, I actually think that's coming relatively quickly. Like, I think we could see that, uh, I don't know about 2030, but certainly by 2040. Yeah, this is, it sounds all, this is all very brave new world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of course. I, <laughs> you know, I love brave new world. The only, the only advice I give to everyone in, out there, I think I've probably told you is that there are two books uh, 1984 and Brave New World, they're meant to be read together. So I, I'm, a, I'm an extremist. I read page one, page one, page two, page three. Wait, what? <laughs> I've read them one and then the other. I've read chapter one, chapter one, chapter two, chapter two. I've done it many ways. I've listened to them. I've seen it, all the you know uh, uh, representations of them in movies. Um, and the reason they're fascinating is because together, first off, uh, you know they, they knew each other. Uh, uh, one was mentored by the other? Yeah, sort of like Huxley was a mentor in many ways to, or to Orwell, and he wrote a review of Orwell's books. Um, they had debates over who was more right about the future. Mm -hmm. uh, from their perspective, they were both right, but you know, Huxley would say, you know, I'm, I'm more right. But he was more right for his social status. Not, not that Orwell was as bad off as he claimed, but, but essentially the way you should look at them is, you know, at least from my view, again, a literary theorist would bury me in this approximation that I'm about to spew. But uh, Brave New World is essentially for the G seven countries, yeah. G20 maybe, so the 1%, and, and 1984 is for the 99%. And that's why they're best yeah. read together, because they're actually describing, it's a little bit like Chaucer, 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 I can never pronounce anything, uh, or, or, uh, or uh, uh, not Darwin, uh, uh, Dickens, uh, Dickens, you know, or upstairs, downstairs. There are two societies at play here, one of wealth and privilege, and one of servitude. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that hasn't changed since the time of the pharaohs. It, it certainly hasn't changed today. Uh, just ask your average, you know, gig economy worker, uh, and and it's not. I don't believe that's going to change in the future. Um, and so when I, when, when, you know, for where you're sitting there right now at your home, you're quite frankly you fall in the brave new world category, and it'll probably resonate better with you. You'll read 1984 and go, oh, that, that never happens. Mm -hmm. But you hand that to someone, you know, who's on social assistance or unemployment, they, they may resonate closer to 1984 because they'll see the empathy level and they'll see themselves in it more. Um, what what I what I find interesting about what you had to say about um, the CRISPR the CRISPR possibility and, you know, gene editing and everyone is born in vitro, um, is that we were talking a bit about what happens, what we think might happen um, post-COVID and, you know, people seeing each other as others more. I imagine that when you can pay to have yourself be upgraded to a higher class of person, the level of otherness or like the like the, the literal stratas that it will create in society will be very strong because there'll be people who paid to be a tier higher than everyone else. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So look, this will put the caste system in India to shame. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, because, and here's where it doesn't end. It, 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 and where, you know, post COVID has all those issues. Post uh, human 1.5, it's far worse. Oh, yeah. Here's why. So I have, I would say, you know, I, I'm fortunate. I think enough to have an average IQ. I have a, a son who's infinitely smarter than me. Like, it's frightening how intelligent he is. By the way, all intelligence, I believe I read this two years ago in Nature. And again, I'd have to go find the reference. So, but essentially, it's maternal. So if, if, if anyone's out there and they're really proud of their kids being smart, thank the mom, not the dad. The dad is epigenetic of sorts in that, you know, we can encourage, you know, the tools have to be there and they have to be supported. But but let's thank mom for the IQ. So my wife is also quite a bit smarter than me. Uh, so, so anyways, he's quite smart. But let's just say we're going to go post-Darwin with his children. We do the genetic editing and you can't go too extreme because, you know, yeah. you, you also have also psychological issues, uh, reward issues, uh, you know, fight or flight issues. All those things still exist. But you can double the IQ, let's just say. Yeah. So, so let's just assume uh, a number for me at 100, my son at 150, uh, but because we're drawing a graph here, and and his daughter or son is 300. Now, in in my world today, I, I have a son who's quite bright, and when he meets with his grandparents who are still alive, he's very respectful and listens to their stories. He knows he's probably seen more of the world and thought more things than them, but there's still a connection. It's biological, it's empathy, it's all those things. Mm-hmm. However, if I have a granddaughter or a grandson or a grand them or they, you know, all those other forms, yeah. and they have a 300 or more IQ, I will look like a chimpanzee to them. And they will be, I mean, they should have higher empathy and all this stuff, I get that, but they will probably view me as a chimp and an embarrassment. And so can you imagine him going to his kids to have been genetically enhanced to 300 or more IQ and say, I got some good news. Uh, you know, your grandfather's coming to your piano recital. Oh, God, no. Now, today when they do that, it's because, you know, granddad dresses funny or smells funny or looks funny. But in the future, it's going to be because they're a chimpanzee in comparative terms. And so it'll be like, my God, can you just give him a banana, leave him in the car? We'll, you know, we'll stream it out to his iPad or whatever. And, and I just don't want my friends to see where I come from. And so you think, well, that's kind of bad. It's kind of rude. But now their kids because of the scale, the way it's going, now have a 3,000-point IQ. So now you see disenfranchisement, not between tribes, but just even within the tribe and within the peer group and within, within the family. And that's, that's kind of an interesting scenario to think through. What, how do we maintain a level of connection, empathy, and civility when the gaps are just that wide? You know, I, I have a, we have a dog that you know, I have around. It's fun and all that stuff. But you know, I wouldn't have this, this particular conversation with it. Because it would, it would be seen, it would, I would view it as a waste of my time. I mean, maybe dolphins have a higher IQ and they would give me some pointers on science and that would be great. But the dog, I'm pretty sure, doesn't. Uh, it's good at catching the Frisbee. Uh, you know, it, it's good at giving me joy and comfort, but it's not so good at, at, at talking about software development, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and that gap between the dog's IQ and my IQ will be similar to the gap between my grandchildren or their children's great-grandchildren, I don't know if I'll be but great-grandchildren's IQ and my IQ. And I think that's going to be interesting, number one. Number two that's going to be interesting is between siblings because technology does not rust. It just keeps going forward faster. And, and you know, one of the famous things from, I think it's through the looking glass, the Red Queen and Alice, you know, the Queen's running very fast and Alice starts running beside her, but they're not moving. And Alice says, we're running awfully fast and going nowhere. And the Red Queen says, yes, sometimes you have to run very fast just to stay in the same spot. But now the fa- I think families may be restricted to one child policies globally in this post-human 2.0 world because the second child could be a tremendous upgrade to the first. 
Oh, yeah. The other two go by, right? Yeah. So imagine you have the first child, 300 IQ. Oh my gosh, they're gonna get, you know, PhD by the time they're 10. We're so proud. Second one comes along, I got PhD when I was five. <laughs> Next one comes along, I got PhD when I was two. <laughs> and so even with thin families, talk about sibling rivalry. I mean, yeah. it, it yeah. has to be the obsolete sibling. <laughs> No, the sibling won't be obsolete. Sorry, the the the, the senior. Uh, so so that disrespect, not disrespect, that's the wrong word, but that disenfranchisement between me and my grandchildren, great grandchildren. Imagine that now occurring just between brother and sister. Yeah, that would be crazy. But I mean, if I that, common, but it's crazy. But if that is assumed to be, if that if we think that's a problem, we see that's a problem. A part of you know putting in in place the right legal structure is considering the social repercussions, and if that is one of the possibilities that we see. My thinking is that we just say, no, don't do that. We like we limit the amount of change, I guess, over a generation or. Yeah, so limits never work. Never uh, work. But, oh, sorry, I won't say they never work. There is things like mutually assured destruction. Let's think of it from a weapons point of view. Uh, you know, you know, uh, you know the, the United Nations, the Hague, uh, the, the, the Geneva Convention, you know, uh, all these things have said certain things are just not going to happen. So in, in nuclear weapons, we have, of course, the concept of mutually assured destruction, kind of kept things in check a little bit. But in chemical weapons, which is kind of timely given COVID thing, uh, we, we, you know, uh, biological weapons, I mean, we've, as a species said, that's verboten. We, we just don't do that. The horrors of, uh, for example, mustard gas in the First World War uh, so shook people to their foundation that we, we agreed not, not to ever deploy them. Uh, now, white phosphorus has probably been used lots of times. There's certain, that those are more chemical, not biological. Biological weapons are, are, are verboten or are outlawed. Now, it doesn't mean people stop working on them, though. <laughs> so there are... Yeah many research centers uh, around the world working on horrific things to kill people and it keeps going and they're they, they're they're what you call they're like mad they're they're just in case weapons mm -hmm. and there are large organizations the u.s certainly you know like company organization like saic you know they they have suitcase nukes i mean mm -hmm. you know, you know you, that, that's, that's that's a frightening thing why would we want it? well nobody wants them but just in case the other guy has them uh we, we better have them too yeah. and 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 so you know, I, I, I don't know if that, that kind of answers your question, but, you know, there are laws against it. There are laws uh, against cloning a human right now. But there's certainly lots of leakage, and maybe it's fictional, and maybe it's, you know, so-called dark web, scary, spooky stories and that. But we know we can clone species, and it's probably not a crazy conspiracy nutter thing to say someone's going to give that a shot. Either have given it a shot, or will yeah. give it a shot in the near sure, future. For sure. There are laws against it. And yeah. so there's always, you know, uh, you know, laws. There, there are different geostate, geonational, you know, laws. There's Sharia in in in, in uh, Islamic countries. There's, you know, uh, there's the uh, water the law of the waterways. It's kind of universal. There's space law. That's kind of universal. Um, but I wouldn't say that stops activity. You know, we we opened, uh, you know, it's fictional in a way, but we, not in a way. It's fictional. But we opened that Pandora's box. Uh, it doesn't close back up. You know, and so knowledge, uh, you know, e exists. And, and there's always an enthusiast, there's always a, a great thinker, and there's people that will discover faster ways to cure, faster ways to kill, faster ways to go faster, <laughs> you know, faster of everything. Um, I don't think that stops. And so I think you could, you could say, look, we want to have a law. I think what's a more plausible law, because we did see it work in China, sort of, although at a horrific price, uh, you know, a one-child policy. One child, yeah. And so it could be, so how can you make a one-child policy in, in North America, in, in a liberal kind of world? Well, you can't because it would just never make it through. I mean, we can't get rid of people's, you know, AR-15s, you know, and, and, and M4 rifles, you know, semi-automatics. Mm. 
you know, uh, in, in open carry. So if we can't get rid of that, I, I'm pretty sure we can't go up to people and say, guess what, you can only have one child. But what we can do, and, and, and it's being done, I think, is that we can make it really expensive. And so say this genetic editing and ectogenesis costs, the floor is $100,000, but it goes up to you know, millions. Uh, and the advantages are priced a la carte. And so it could be that um, not unlike the, uh, 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 what happened in China when it, when it was one child policy, because it's kind of gone now, um, that, that you would put all your chips on that one bet. And so, you know, we, could, we came into this room with $100,000 to get a 150 IQ healthy, you know, ba ectogenesis baby girl, but they have a special on this week and for a mere $50,000 more or 10 more years of debt, uh, that child could have a 200 IQ. Well, we'll never regret that. So let's just go for it. But we can't do it twice. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I guess. It, yeah, so not law, but just a price. Yes, price restriction. Price, price the market. There's a reason everyone's not driving. I mean, it's a terrible car. I've driven on it. There's a reason not everyone drives Lamborghinis. You know, it's 300,000 bucks or whatever. Yeah, but that's still so, a scary thought to make you know, children, a luxury item. So then what is that? What, what is that? What is the people who do, who can't afford a single child? You, you literally just quoted a line from my newer paper, which I, uh, uh, call me Ishmael, which is, up on, which is literally children are becoming the modern day luxury item. Because, yeah. and that's going to accelerate because you will have at least a 100,000 to half a million to millions of dollars of either debt or servicing just preconception. Well, no, no, I'd like to qualify that statement. I don't think children are being, Children won't necessarily become a luxury item. The people who can't afford it will have children. They'll just be at a lower, like a significantly, like an exponentially lower level than. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's, sorry, that's why we were talking about those books earlier. So the yeah. ones who go through the, you know, the, the registered birth savings plan, when at birth, they all get a copy of Brave New World. <laughs> and the families that just do the natural birth, all those kids are issued a free copy of 1984. So they're ready for what they, so they, can, they they know what to expect. I mean, we're talking about how like the wealth gap is worsening now. There will literally be a divide that will be inescapable at that point. Yeah, it becomes a species yeah. gap. Yeah, it's, it's a species gap. Yeah, yeah. So the wealth gap will, uh, there, there, it, it would take a tremendous global change. Yeah. At, at, at a level that is beyond my ability to understand for sure to, to, to reel that in at this point. And it's actually accelerating. So we talked earlier about you know robots putting wheels on cars on an assembly line at you know one half or a quarter or a tenth of the calories well you know that was a that was labor that was someone was paid for that um and you know they went home and they had a house hopefully and kids and stuff yeah. well the robot doesn't have any of those things and it works seven days a week at 24 hours a day other than maintenance and someone owns those robots and so the fruit of that labor and it's literally a term the fruits of labor uh, shall be protected. It's in the constitution. Well, the fruits of that labor go to the owner of the robot. Yeah. And so if you're rich enough to own, say you have a small, uh, you know, landscaping company and you've got three robots that you took loans and you had hundred thousand bucks each and they mow lawns and trim hedges and you're going to get by. Okay. But then there's going to be other people, uh, you know, of the world that uh, have 10,000 robots. That bifurcation of wealth. Well, has, we don't even understand bifurcation of wealth we see what happens in that scenario um, and it'll accelerate I think at a, at a pace so we will have to come up with a new model certainly this concept of guaranteed minimal income uh, is getting a lot of attention now and in fact that's gone on you know that's been given like a steroid injection with COVID um, uh, and, and will likely continue um, but I like to remind people when they hear 
there's careers, there's, there's jobs, you know, there's, there's, there's tasks, jobs, there's careers. Um, I like to think of things like, you know, the difference between a job and a career is a job you shower after work, a career you shower before work. And, and, and you know, you definitely want to hopefully be in the latter because apparently there's more value in it. But, uh, uh, but you know, you, you build a career, build wealth, whatever, with those reasons. Guaranteed minimal income or viable income, you know, it's, it's the key word is minimal. Uh, it's yeah. not like you're going to live like a king <laughs> or <a> queen. <laughs> you, you, you probably won't die of starvation or freeze to death in the middle of the night in the winter, but it's not like you're going to be living, living well. And, and so this bifurcation is coming. Um, I actually, you know, think maybe there's a new Adam Smith out there uh, thinking about these things in a, in a greater way um, and, and, and can give us an answer that works, you know, sort of Gene Roddenberry kind of did that with the, Star Trek series, although it's great in space and in, in fiction because you can just explain away things so easily. You know, well, we no longer have an economic system, and then they go on to the next, you know, challenge. And I'm like, wait a minute, back that up. Can you do a couple of episodes on how that whole economic system works? Because there's a whole field of of uh, sociologists, politicians, and economists that would like to learn that part. I wouldn't skip by it so quickly next time. I think that sums up all the questions I can think of. Good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It sums up the ones you had written. I hope it does not sum up the extent of your ability to question. I'm done questioning. I'm done. I'm going to go into a box now. Okay, I'm, I'm over. I'm over. I'm just going to curl up. Yeah, you, you finished the questions that were in the box. Yes. <laughs> yes, I did. Way outside the box. So, yeah. uh, look, I, I've said this before. I, I expect you and your, your peer group to change the world. Um, certainly, the adults before me made a hell of a mess. Um, I probably haven't helped much. Um, but I think the tools the openness and the need more than anything else, the urgency for change. Um, and you know, COVID's like a, a sampler platter. It's, it's like literally the olive on a buffet table of change that's coming. And you know, change can go one of two ways. Well, it can go many ways actually, but, but I'm, I'm encouraged all the time uh, when I'm uh, uh, well, either with you or your peer group or folks, uh, at, at, especially the folks in the school that, that say, I refuse to accept that this is the default path. Um, I, it doesn't have, I, it, it, I don't know which way it has to be, but it doesn't have to be this way. We, we don't have to be uh, xenophobic. We, we, we don't have to, uh, you know, have uh, the vast amount of our treasury placed into weapon systems. Uh, you know, we should be exploring space. We should be evolving ourselves. We should be learning, we should be writing, you know, greater poems, greater songs. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I know I can't do that. <laughs> In fact, I don't know anyone in my peer group in Canada. I, I think we're just all too rigid at this point. And so the plasticity, and I know people talk about plasticity brain, I'm not talking about that, but plasticity of the solution space that you will consider is vastly larger and, and, and superior to mine. And I might have a good answer for one or two questions you might have, because I've got some experience and hopefully some wisdom because of the losses I've had and the, you know, that gap, but, but they will be pedestrian compared to the solutions that that you will have, and and I'm I don't it's, I don't want to sound corny, but I'm like excited. <laughs> I, you know, I, I I want you to be the Loretta Napoloni of solutions, you know, surprises, of hard problems that that none of us, you know, talking monkeys can escape, and and uh, and it's needed now more than ever. I mean, I there are only a few pivotal moments in history where we were like, oh damn, this could go really badly, and uh, we're certainly in the middle of one right now. Um, and, and so my only encouragement to you and folks that you know, you're doing your podcast for 
is for God's sakes, whenever anyone tells you that can't be done, I think I told you this the first time I met you, but just dismiss it immediately, uh, unless it's flying boots. Absolutely accept that one. Yeah. I, I, spent, I spent ample amount of time looking at that one. But the, <laughs> <laughs> more like dreaming about it. But, but, you know, dismiss that and say, clean slate. I'm going to come up with, whether it's five, three, one, or 100 scenarios, I'm going to come up with scenarios, pick one that makes sense to me, that's exciting, that's fun, that's surprising, and I can pursue it. And then usually when you pursue something, it's going to take time. It's going to take, I believe everything takes, you know, takes kind of like one year to familiarize yourself with a topic, five years to get to some level of discipline, and 10 years to be recognized that you probably do know something about a topic. Uh, like it takes time. There's just the amount of information we have to ingest because we're not a board. You know, we have to unfortunately bootstrap ourselves into knowledge. Uh, but we can learn from others wiser than us. And so the material, the, you know, the, the, obviously the, the, the internet, uh, for lack of a better thing, uh, the online training, um, the, the potential, for example, pending potential still of say VR and AR, they're going to accelerate your mind far beyond what, what I will ever experience. And I'm so excited about that. It's not funny. I just hope you can dumb it down enough to explain it to me when you figure out these secrets of the, of the universe. Hey again, it's your host, Anjali. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the 2020 show. We have some amazing guests lined up for you from leaders at tech giants like Google and Microsoft, to founders, policymakers, and more. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, stay safe.